Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. While slavery is seen by many as something of the past, there are reminders both subtle and explicit of that institution that remain with us today. From plantations where enslaved people were forced to labor, to statues dedicated to those who fought to uphold the practice. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In 2017, Atlantic staff writer Clint Smith began traveling across the U.S. and the world to visit monuments and landmarks. He wanted to better understand how the echoes of slavery resonate today. He visited places like the Monticello Plantation in Virginia, the Whitney Plantation in New Orleans, and Angola, a plantation turned prison in Louisiana. Smith wrote about that experience in his book, How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint Smith, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This book takes the reader on a journey through various sites across the United States that have deep connections to the history of enslavement in this country. And it includes educational sites, plantations, prisons, and even a cemetery that shows that legacy that persists even into death. Before we talk about those sites in particular, share with our listeners what motivated you to write this book and why you thought it was so important to tell the story in this way. Yeah, so in many ways, the origin story is that in 2017, I was watching several Confederate statues come down in my hometown in New Orleans, statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents still live on a street today named after someone who owned over 150 enslaved people. Because, you know, the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. Which isn't to say that just taking down a 60-foot-tall statue of Robert E. Lee is going to suddenly erase the racial wealth gap. But it does help us recognize a sort of ecosystem of ideas and stories and narratives that help give us a better understanding of what has happened throughout American history and the ways that certain communities have been disproportionately and intentionally harmed throughout American history. So I was watch- looking around my own hometown, the place that raised me, the place that in so many ways made me who I am. And I was like, well, what are the places that are telling the story honestly? What are the places that are telling the story dishonestly? And what are the places that are sort of doing something in between? You know, Because I, I remember growing up as a kid in New Orleans and having no sense of the history of slavery in any way that was commensurate with the sort of legacy that it left on this that city. New Orleans was at one point the largest and busiest slave market in the country. And yet I had no idea. You know, I was I was I lived and played and had some of my fondest memories beneath the literal shadows of statues of men who fought a war to keep my ancestors enslaved. And so, you know, the this 
history is so saturated within New Orleans, but I also realized that it was saturated across the country. And so I kind of began in New Orleans, but I, I ventured out and started thinking about different places across the South, different places across the, the North, different places across the entirety of the country to try to get a sense of, well, what are the places that have a relationship to this history? Are they being honest about it? Are they being dishonest about it? Um, how are they in doing their sort of own process of reckoning with uh, the past that they're so intimately linked to? And so spent you know four or five years traveling across the country and, and even across the ocean to try to answer those questions. Let's talk about some of those sites as you pursue those questions, because your book reminds us that there is always substance in those symbols. And the meaning of that substance, the feeling of that substance varies based on context. And you open the book talking about what's commonly called Monticello, the, the home of Thomas Jefferson. But you make the point to call it by its full name. And that is the Monticello Plantation, which is located in Virginia. Why decide to open the book with that focus on the Monticello Plantation? You know, Monticello, the home of, of Jefferson, is is a fascinating place and a place that I wanted to start the book because I think that Jefferson is in so many ways uh, a sort of microcosm of the story of America, which is, you know, which is to say that America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have simply never imagined. And it has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. You get to pick one and not pick the other. It's that you have to hold all of that together. You have to hold the complicated uh, duality and complexity of the United States all at once. And I think that Jefferson is a sort of uh, personification of, of that in so many ways, right? Jefferson is, you know, the intellectual architect of this country, and he's someone uh, along, you know, alongside Madison and Hamilton and, and others. And he's also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He's someone who wrote in, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. And he's someone who wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that black people are likely inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind, as he put it. He believed that the slave was incapable of love, incapable of possessing or sustaining complex emotion in the same way that their white counterparts would, you know, talked about Phyllis Wheatley, the sort of foremother of African-American letters, uh, the, the first black woman to publish a, a book of poetry in the United States. And he said that her work was below the dignity of criticism. It wasn't even worth engaging with because black black people to his uh, to his eye did not have the sort of emotional dexterity uh, or the intellectual acumen with which to create art. And so I was thinking about all of that, and I was thinking about how for so much of my life, until fairly recently, I think, and I think this is the case for much of the country, that was just a version of Jefferson that I never encountered. And I think about how for so long in this country, we, we have been so committed to the idea of American exceptionalism that we have suppressed uh, stories that make render us unexceptional or exceptional in ways that are more unflattering than flattering. And so I went to Monticello and I was like, well, how is this institution that is tasked with communicating and conveying and, uh, and maintaining the legacy of Jefferson? What, what version of that story are they telling? Are they telling a... Uh, two-dimensional story of Jefferson that does not account for his uh, transgressions as an enslaver? Uh, or are they telling uh, a three-dimensional story that that holds Jefferson in all of his complexity? And uh, when I went, I always remember I went on a tour with this guy, David Thorson, 
and David uh, is an older white guy, uh, very professorial, had this sort of large brown brimmed hat uh, and, this, and this walking cane. And he was leading what is called the slavery at Monticello tour. You know, so Monticello has several different iterations of its tour because there, there were so many different pieces to, to Jefferson's life and legacy. And this one specifically focuses on the legacy of slavery at Monticello. And David was outlining a lot of what I was just talking about, you know, the sort of moral inconsistencies of Jefferson's intellectual project and, um, and his, his sort of ethics around slavery and, and other matters. And, I remember looking at these two women, Donna and Grace, as the story, as he was telling these stories, and their faces were wilting and their mouths hung agape, and they were very clearly unsettled by what they were hearing. And I went to them after the presentation, and I was like, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you thought about David's presentation. It seemed like it really uh, impacted you. And I always remember Donna turned to me, and she was just like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. She's just like, I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea Monticello was a plantation. And mind you, these are folks who bought plane tickets, rented cars, got hotel rooms, who came to this site as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of one of our founding fathers and yet had no idea that he was an enslaver. And for me, that was such an important moment at the beginning of the book and at the beginning of my own research, where it was a reminder that so many millions of people across this country can still don't understand the history of slavery in any way that is commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. Um, and it also showed me that I needed it to, in order to write the sort of book that I wanted to write, a book that tried to explore the, how the memory of slavery manifests itself in different spaces and, and the people within those places. I had to talk to the people who were encountering these spaces. Like it couldn't be my own sort of reflections and meditations on my experiences in these spaces. And I could have written the version of the book that was that, but I don't think it would be what this book is and what I hope this book is, is which is a more dynamic uh, sort of experience for the reader to get a sense of how so much of the way that we encounter historical sites is shaped by our own backgrounds, our own identities, our own education, our own uh, prejudices, our own uh, biases. And uh, and that is ultimately what come together and, and create our, our collective or uh, sort of staccato understanding of um, of American history across this country. You mentioned how we bring our own identities and our experiences and understandings into these encounters and into the understanding of what happened. And I have to say, Clint, I grew up about 45 minutes from Monticello, which meant mm. that every year we had an ob obligatory school field trip to Monticello. And mm. I'm not proud to say it, but maybe I am. I got kicked off of a field trip to Monticello in middle school because I asked about Sally Hemings. And I mm. wanted to know, is it true that this enslaved woman on this plantation, allegedly half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife, was never freed by this man who said in notes of the state of Virginia that black people were in incapable of love, but still held her in slavery with that very small bedroom carved out behind his main room. So as a seventh grader, I got kicked mm. off of that field trip. And I'll just say that it was also at the time when Virginia was recognizing Lee Jackson King Day because it refused mm. to have a separate holiday. When you think about how people experience that tour based on their racial identities and those sorts of things, and then in the book you talk about the resistance that the curator says, I'm very aware that as a white tour guide, how people receive this info of taking the shine off of Jefferson 
is different from how black guides have been really not just pushed back on that narrative, but in many ways harassed because of it. Mm. How do we reconcile that? The need to tell the fullness of the story of Jefferson and others and the recognition that who's telling the story often shapes how that story is received. Yeah, no, it's a really important point. Um, You know, what I will say is that what's interesting about Monticello is that they amid among all the places that I visited um, and, you know, it's the, the sort of eight or nine places that are included in the book, but I visited dozens of places that didn't end up including in the book that informed how I wrote about the places that were in the book. Monticello is interesting because I think it represents a place. It represents the ideas that the idea that these historical institutions and historical sites are not static, right? They are not trapped in time. They are not uh, anchored uh, to telling the story that they have always told. That they can, there are new versions of that story they can tell. So you know, like yourself, I've encountered so many people. You know, who've reached out to me, who've come to me at book talks, who've emailed me, who've messaged me on social media who went to Monticello specifically as young people or went, you know, or maybe they weren't young, but it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And the way that that Monticello told the story of Jefferson 25 years ago is very different than how they tell the story now, right? Like I I regularly encounter people who are like, when I went, uh, they didn't say anything about slavery. When I went, they didn't say the word Sally Hemings. When I went, you know, it, it is still given that um, you know, Thomas Jefferson's home has been a historical site and a museum for, you know, 150 years. It is very recent that they have begun to meaningfully interrogate the, the, the way that they tell the story of Jefferson. It's only in 2018 that they began uh, having a Hemings family tour. Um, and the Hemings family, you know, Sally Hemings being being one of them, um, were central to Monticello in in like really foundational ways. And, you know, the the great historian Annette Gordon-Reed has her incredible book, The Hemingses of Monticello, which sort of outlines the the lineage of the, the Hemings family and the role that they played in making Monticello what it did, uh, what it was. And, and it, you know, that was only four years ago that that tour began, right? And the Slavery of Monticello tour has only been in place for a little bit longer than that. And, and, and I think sometimes these institutions need to be pushed. Um, and this is an institution that has been pushed um, by many scholars, by many activists, by many descendants, importantly. Um, and I think that what they try to do is incorporate a range of different voices in their curatorial process, right? So there are the people like David, right, who spent, you know, David spent 30 years in the military. He lived down the road from Monticello. Um, and you know, is in, and people on a tour will, when they see David, many of them see their father or their grandfather. And those are the people who told them the stories of this country, of their community, of themselves that shaped how they understand who they are in the world. And so now you have somebody who resembles in so many ways that same person giving them a more uh, complex a more holistic, a more, and what it can often be a more jarring uh, version of American history. But I think for some people, it allows them to hear it in a different way. But that doesn't mean that 
black people, for example, should not be part of telling that story, right? So they also have like a, there are black guides. Um, but I talk about how in, uh, how it has been difficult for black, for Monticello to keep black guides and black docents because, you know, the majority of white visitors who come to Monticello <laughs> bring a lot of, um, it is, it can be very difficult for the black docents to, um, not experience their own sort of emotional uh to carry an additional sort of emotional labor because of the the way that white visitors are sort of um you know vomiting all of their their biases and prejudices and previous conceptions of american history back onto them right so it's if you're the descendant of an enslaved person and you're trying to explain Jefferson's legacy as an enslaver and someone who's only understood Jefferson as being the sort of singular pillar of, of brilliance uh, and this representative of the uh, the beauty of the American project, and they're pushing back against you, you experience that in a very different way because it's personal, because you're not talking about like America in an abstract way. They're, you are talking about their like my their their great grandparents. You're talking about the people from from who these folks emerge. So, but you know, but Monticello does have like the Getting Word Oral History Project in which they try to use the oral histories passed down through the descendants of of enslaved people. I was just there on Juneteenth um, of this year where they re sort of renovated the enslaved burial ground, um, which had not been very well kept for a long time, but. Um, they've redone it and they've like restructured how they present it. Um, and, and it was a very moving experience to see the people who were the descendants of, of people who had been enslaved at this plantation, who didn't have a real, um, site of, of, uh, that they could go to, to remember their, their ancestors. Um, it was, it was a really powerful moment to see them have access to, to that space in, in a new way. That's Clint Smith, author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. Smith is winner of the 2022 Stowe Prize. It recognizes an author whose work illuminates a critical social issue in the tradition of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Coming up, we move to Smith's hometown of New Orleans, Louisiana. It was historically one of the busiest hubs of the slave trade. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
This hour, we're joined by Dr. Clint Smith, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. In 2017, Smith traveled to locations across the United States and Africa to learn more about historical sites of slavery, from plantations that enslaved generations of families to prisons that today are disproportionately populated by Black men and women. Before the break, we talked about the history of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello Plantation in Virginia. You say something in the book that really stuck with me. And you said that there you're always reminded about slavery and the Confederacy. You mentioned it growing up with the street names, the statues. And you talk about the echo of enslavement that is everywhere. Say more about that. You know, in New Orleans, you know, in particular, I think about my one of my old professors in graduate school, the historian Walter Johnson. Um, and he wrote this incredible book about the history of slavery in New Orleans, uh, specifically the history of the slave trade in New Orleans, uh, soul by soul. And in the book, he says of New Orleans, the whole city is a memorial to slavery. It's in the roads and slave people built. It's in the buildings and slave people constructed. It's in the levees and slave people built. It's in the soil and slave people are buried in. Um, their their presence is 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 everywhere. Um, and I think that you know. There's nowhere, there are few places you can go in New Orleans that have not been touched by slavery. Um, and I think that that's true for for many of these, uh, many cities across the country and not just in the South. You know, I was in, I was in Germany not too long ago because um, I've, you know, when I, I've been on book tour for, for a little over a year um, and I've, I've talked so much about, um, you know, the book and people often say, well, what's an example of a, a place that does a really good job of memorializing um the you know their own uh crimes against humanity in their in their history and and i would invoke germany often um in terms of how germany confronts its relationship to the holocaust um but there was a moment where i got increasingly unsettled by how i was invoking germany but like hadn't really spent any time there and so i went to germany and one of the most moving memorials that i encountered is called uh the stolperstein uh, which is translated into English. I'm probably sorry to any German people or German speakers out there for butchering that, but uh, but the English translation is stumbling stone. And what they are is it's a sort of decentralized memorial where there are tens of thousands of brass stones that have been put into the ground. And they are placed in front of the homes of uh, where Jewish people uh, and others who were persecuted by the Nazis uh, and murdered by the Nazis, they're placed in front of the the last residence from which these people were taken before they were sent off to the death camps. And so, you know, you'll be walking down the streets of Berlin and you'll go, you'll stand in front of a house and there'll be two stumbling stones and it'll have the name, the birth date, the date they were taken, the date they were killed and where they were killed. And then you walk a few houses down, there are four, and you walk a few houses down and there are 10, and you walk a few houses down, and there are 15, and you look at the names and you look at the dates and you can see the that these are families, right? You see the children, you see the mom and dad, you see the grandparents, the cousins, the uncles. Um, and it is so, it's such an intimate memorial. It just gives you, so, like you look at the stone in front of this house and you look at the house and you just imagine that only 80 years ago that there were, Jewish folks who were pulled from their homes, sent to trains, 
you know, with one way tickets and then, and you know, who would, who would never return. And, and I, there was, when I was the spend, when I was there, I was with a Jewish German woman and, and she was like, what do you think? She was like, if you all had this for slavery in, in the United States, the whole street would be paved in, in gold. The whole street would be paved in, in these brass stones. And it was this moment where I was just like, like, what would it look like if New Orleans had, you know, a similar thing to Berlin with these stumbling stones? And I was like, yeah, you know, you'd, you'd walk down some of these streets and it would be, it would be everywhere. It, you know, if you had stones marking the places where enslaved people were held, where they were sold, where they were captured. Um, and that was a really profound sort of moment of realization for, for me um, that sort of allowed me to imagine the, as you say, the way that the echo of enslavement could be sort of permanently placed uh, and marked in in that city. And and I think about what sort of impact that would have on the landscape of the city, the landscape of many cities, and how would that recalibrate the way that folks remember what happened? Um, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about that. Part of the challenge of recalibration, Clint, is when I think about the ways that people try to remake these sites of extreme violence, pain, torture, being these plantations, and try to make them into bed and breakfast inns or sites for weddings and celebrations. What do you think of that, of that approach of, as you said, this is in many ways sacred ground that is a massive Mm. stumbling stone in American history, particularly in Louisiana, particularly in New Orleans. Is that a way to remake that? Or do you think that it ignores the deep-seated pain and history of those spaces? Oh, yeah. I mean, I you know, I had an entire section uh, initially in the book on uh, the phenomenon of plantation weddings. Um, and we, we ended up having to cut it for, for space. Um, but, but I spent a lot of time visiting uh, plantations where people do hold weddings. Uh, I spent time talking to uh, wedding planners who either hold, you know, organize weddings at former plantations or refuse to um, and talk to them about how they make those decisions. And this is why I think a place like the Whitney Plantation is so important because um, the Whitney Plantation is the only plantation in Louisiana uh, and one of the only plantations in the country. Um, now there are there are many more over the last uh, few years uh, that have begun to sort of reexamine how they tell the story. But it is one of the only plantations in the country that sort of singularly dedicate themselves to telling the story of uh, that plantation through the lens of enslavement and through the lens of the enslaved people who were held there. And it's surrounded by a sort of constellation of plantations where people, as you mentioned, continue to hold weddings. People continue to have bed and breakfasts. People uh, have, you know, these massive celebrations or debutante balls. And I was talking to one wedding planner who told me how in some of the former slave cabins at some of these sites, they're now used, those slave cabins during the weddings will be used as bridal suites uh, during during the celebrations. And the Whitney is a place that, that fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can be understood as anything other than an intergenerational site of torture, right? They're like, this was, and we don't often, scholars do, so, you know, but the public does not often understand or think of plantations as torture sites in the same way that they do some other um, 
versions of of this in in other places across the world. But they were sites of torture. I think of the scholar Ed, Edward Baptist, um, who writes in in the half has never been told, and, and in so much of his work talks about the the sort of economy of torture, the way that especially in some some of these plantations in the deep south, the incentive for these en- enslavers was to div- create a system that uh, exploited as much labor as possible, extracted as much work as possible from these workers in ways that can only be understood as as like torturous and insidious, like coming up with new sort of like psychological mechanisms of psychological torture or physical torture in order to get folks to work as much as they can. And so how can you have those sites and have them be the place? I, I don't understand how you can have a site where that was an intergenerational site of torture and have it be a place where you want to spend you know, presumably one of the happiest days of your life. Um, and so, you know, a question that I wrestled with was like, are these people who hold these ceremonies there, are they ignorant to this history? Are they cognizant of the history and don't care? Or is that history part of the appeal, right? Like, is that history, whether consciously or subconsciously, part of the desire to have it there? And I think the answer might be different for for all sorts of different people. But, you know, alongside confederate statues and confederate iconography i think that you know plantation weddings are kind of like the low-hanging fruit of this debate i think there are like meaningful good faith debates to be had about whether or not we should have statues of of jefferson you know in certain places whether we should have statues of of andrew jackson in certain places whether we should have you know the 12 of our first 18 presidents owned enslaved people and and i think that there's a lot of all of those President, the enslavement that all of those presidents engaged in looked like what uh, Jefferson did is different than what Washington did, which is different than what Jackson did, which is different than what Grant did, which is different than what Polk did. But And so it's not to conflate all of them, but I think that people of good faith can have disagreements about how we should remember the totality of someone's legacy. But for like statues of the Confederacy, you know, people who fought a war predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery, for plantation weddings you know again these like sites of torture where someone would want to celebrate um on the on the sort of not supposed the actual grave sites of you know these uh enslaved people those for me feel like the parts of the conversation that that you know everything can be up for debate i guess but that seemed very straightforward to me um, and yeah, I think your your framing of of thinking of those sites as as sort of large stumbling stones themselves is is an important one. Um, unfortunately, there are so many plantations across the South that uh, attempt, you know, rather than making them rendering themselves a sort of stumbling stone, they uh, they try to um, erase any relationship to that to that history. That's Dr. Clint Smith author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Smith is the 2022 Stowe Prize recipient. Coming up, the final part of my conversation with Clint Smith will discuss prisons and their roots in slavery. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
This hour, we've been discussing and attempting to grapple with America's history of slavery and how that history has profound echoes that resonate even today. Our guest is Clint Smith, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Before the break, we talked about how plantations are frequently divorced from their dark history. Here's the rest of that conversation. I am struck and in some ways stuck on that phrase, intergenerational sites of terror. And of thinking about Louisiana and how it's captured in your book, that those intergenerational sites aren't just plantations. They're also prisons that continue to this day as intergenerational sites of terror, but also intergenerational sites for the creation and reproduction of wealth for particular entities. And one of the prisons that you visit is the famed Angola Penitentiary there. And you visited with Norris Henderson, who I believe is unequivocally one of this country's, this world's leading voices and activists on criminal justice reform, even before it was a popular topic to discuss, who spent nearly 30 years of his life incarcerated in that facility. What was that experience for you of going to Angola, traveling that highway that you had traversed so often for the innocence of youth like Boy Scouts and athletics? What was it like making that journey to Angola? You know, I could have written a whole book just about the experience at Angola. And and many people have, you know, written really fantastic books about Angola. Um, you know, for context for folks, Angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country. It's 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It's a place where 70% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it is built on top of a former plantation. And what I tell people, you know, to invoke Germany again, is that if, if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would quite rightfully be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country where the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences, many of whom were sentenced as children. Uh, The United States is the only country that sentences children to life without the possibility of parole, many of whom were sentenced by non-unanimous juries, which has since been Uh, rendered unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of the United States for being a vestige of white supremacy, who are picking crops, you know, in fields while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so when I go to Angola, I'm thinking about, well, what are the ways that a history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us to certain types of violence that in another global context would very clearly be unacceptable? And what does it mean that that place has a gift shop? At the entrance of Angola, there's a gift shop and you can buy coffee mugs and shot glasses and, and you know, T-shirts and sweatshirts and uh, baseball caps and stuffed animals dressed in prison garb. And that, you know, one of the things you can buy is a co- on the coffee mug, there's a silhouette of a watchtower. And above and below the watchtower, it reads Angola, a gated community, as if to make a mockery of or belittle the experiences of the thousands of people, the tens of thousands of people over generations who have been incarcerated and held there. 
and I remember being with Norris, um, as you, who, as you said, is just like a remarkable person. Um, and we were leaving Angola. We were leaving at the end of our tour. And we were looking outside, out of the bus, and the uh, we saw these men who were working in the fields. They were lifting their spades into the air and digging them into the earth, lifting their shovels into the air and digging them into the earth. And Norris looked at the men, and he looked at his hands, and he had this moment where you know his hands are, are full of calluses from all the years he spent working in the fields. And he looked at me, and he was like, Clint, I can't, I can't begin to explain to you what it felt like to work in fields for seven cents an hour for years and to wonder if these are the same fields where my ancestors were working and picking cotton 200 years ago right so for the folks who've been incarcerated in angola this history is not a it's not a metaphor it's not a intellectual exercise it's not an abstraction they feel this history in their bones they feel it in their bodies that's it is the calluses in their skin and it's you know it's not to say that slavery and mass incarceration are the same thing. They're not. They're historically unique phenomena and should be understood on their own terms. But it is to say that the residue of enslavement undoubtedly shapes the way that our carceral infrastructure looks and operates. Um, and there's no place that demonstrates that more directly than, than Angola. I visited Angola about 15 years ago for a research mm. project, and our guide was a trustee, so dressed mm. in all white. And he talked about this rodeo that's held at Angola twice a year, the amount of money it generates for the state, but the pride that these men felt that for a moment, they felt like they had something they could control. And for mm. me, it seems such a perverted way to think about they're risking their lives for $100 to have these bulls mm. as they sit at a picnic table in the middle of a ring. But it connects mm. to so much of what you said about the ways that the labor of black people, particularly black men in that institution, continues to be exploited for the gain of people without any sort of say in that. And it brings mm. us, Clint, to, you know, we're now approaching midterm elections in the United States, five states, including Louisiana, will make a decision about whether to abolish slavery in their state constitutions. Louisiana's carve-out for that ballot initiative is except for conditions of punishment related to a criminal offense, mirroring the language of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Do you mm. think Louisiana is moving in the direction of that kind of reckoning, or is this just a hollow approach to really reconciling those legacies within the state? I think that m most people generally are not even cognizant of uh, the exception carved into the 13th Amendment. Um, I think that Louisiana, like much of the country, has been, there. that there has been a shift and I think to different degrees in different places, but there has been a shift in our sort of collective public consciousness about the way that the, the way that racism manifests itself in this country. And that is attributed largely to the Black Lives Matter movement of the past 10 years and the activists and organizers on the ground who have, whose, whose work has opened up space for books like mine, 
um, for other writers, journalists, scholars, uh, thinkers, artists, um, to have their work enter into the public arena in a different way than would have been possible before, much in the same way that the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s opened up a new set of possibilities for uh, for how, you know, historians did their work, for how writers did their work. You know, some of our greatest historians, writers, artists, uh, it is not a coincidence that they come, their work is coming out of that moment because it, the work that activists and organizers did on the ground opened up uh, space for, for those kind of conversations to happen. And I think we've seen a similar thing happen now, and that was kind of supercharged in 2020. Um, with that said, what happens and what has always happened throughout American history is, as uh, scholars of the Black experience know, uh, is that any time there has been a, a shift in the direction of progress, uh, there has been intense pushback um, and intense backlash. And so, you know, what has happened is that over the last 10 years, particularly in the last two years, you've had millions of people whose understanding of this country, whose understanding of, the, of race uh, and racism has become more more nuanced, more complex, more sophisticated, uh, one that is grounded not in an understanding of racism as just an interpersonal phenomenon, but as, as, a, as a systemic one, a structural one, uh, a historical one, a sociological one. At the same time, that new sense of, uh, that new collective understanding that millions of people have is a direct threat to the lives and identities and material wealth and goods of millions of other people. And as a result, now we have, you know, state legislatures across the country who are attempting to prevent teachers from teaching the very history that explains why our society looks the way that it does today. You have school districts who are attempting to ban books that share perspectives that otherwise, uh, that students might not otherwise encounter in either literature or their real lives. And that's not a coincidence. That's because the, when you tell a more honest story of America, it represents an existential threat to how so many people understand who they are because their sense of who their own identities is so deeply tied to the previous version of, of the American story that so many of us were telling, the sort of two-dimensional rendering of, of America in the same way that you know the, we talk about the two-dimensional rendering of Thomas Jefferson's story. But when you and when that is taken away from folks or when people are trying to expand the way that we tell the story, uh, that that's scary for a lot of people. And they use whatever uh, they sort of have economic, social, political uh, tools that they can wield uh, in order to, to push back against it. And I think we're, you know, the sort of critical race theory boogeyman that has been around for the last couple of years is uh, is a sort of representation of the effort to distort um, what uh, telling a more honest story of America is really about. As we come to the close of our time together, I want to share this passage from your book. And it's a very personal passage because you reflect on this time you spend with your grandparents at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. And you write in the book, I think of how decades of racial violence have shaped everything we see but sometimes I find myself forgetting its impact on those right beside me. I forget that so many of the people who threw rocks at Dr. King are still voting in our elections. We tell ourselves that the most nefarious displays of racial violence happened long ago when they were in fact not so long ago at all. 
when you think about this history that you have been able to weave together, you think about this current moment that we are in where people are so actively resisting that, whether it's the banning of books, the attack on voting rights, insurrections at the U.S. Capitol. What do you see as a way forward for us, Clint, to harness these lessons of the past, understanding how it continues to affect us and still create some hope for our kids? The thing I always think about is how, you know, the first enslaved people came to the British colonies that would become the United States in 1619. And, uh, 13th Amendment didn't pass and Civil War didn't end until 1865. So, you know, we... So people commonly understand there's sort of 250 years of uh, a formal enslavement in the British colonies and the United States. But what's also true is that from the moment black people arrived on these shores, they were fighting for freedom. They were fighting for liberation. They were fighting for emancipation. And what that means is that the vast majority of people who fought for freedom never got a chance to experience it for themselves. But they fought for it anyway because they knew that someday someone would. And I think about that. I think about how my life is only possible, how my children's lives are only possible because of generations of people who fought for something that they knew they would probably never see in their own lives, but they fought for it anyway because they knew that someone, some down, some time down the road, someone they would never know would benefit from the work that they were doing. And I think about what sort of responsibility does that bestow upon me? You know, I have all these ideas, like as so many of us do, of what it means to to build a, and and live in a better world, a more just world, a more equitable world, a more generous world. And I think about how sometimes it can be hard for so many of us because we we sort of work to dismantle these institutions on a on a micro scale within our communities and within our institutions, and on a sort of macro scale within the our cities, states, and the country and the world. And it can be hard because it feels like it's sometimes it doesn't feel like it's moving as quickly as it should. But I, in those moments, I remind myself that you don't fight to build a better world so that you can necessarily be the one to experience the fruits of your labor. You, you fight for a better world because somebody fought for a better world for you. And it is our job in so many ways to fight for a better world for, for the folks who, you know, may not be my kids, may not even be their kids. But like someone down the road will benefit from um, from the work that we're doing in the same way that we benefit from the work that that generations of our ancestors have. I think of it as sort of chipping away at a wall, you know, and you you don't know if the wall is six inches thick or six thousand miles thick. But, you know, the more you chip away at it, the less the people who come after you will have to chip away at. And I think that's part of the black uh, historical tradition. Um, and I feel very lucky to be part of that tradition. And that's what. You know, when I think of what gives me hope, it's that, you know, that I'm part of a, a legacy of people who who have been so, um, so selfless and so generous and so, um, so consistent in the work to uh, toward liberation and our sort of collective freedom and that that work uh, that we're still that we are still working towards that. Dr. Clint that Smith. Okay is author of How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. He's staff writer at The Atlantic and recipient of the 2022 Stowe Prize. Clint, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Disrupted is produced by J. Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Talarski. 
You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you have feedback or ideas for our show, you can email us at disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.